Hi, Jamie. Um, can you hold up the room, please? Because sure. the yeah. sharing link doesn't work again. Um, is somebody on maybe on the desktop version? No. Okay, I'll leave and come back in and try to restart the app, okay? Uh, Do you want me to stay here? Yeah? Yes, yeah. Hi, Victoria. <laughs> Hi, Serena. Okay. Hi, Victoria. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Serena. Hello. Hi, Victoria. Hey, Jamie. Dr. Balder? Hello, Dr. Balderson. Um, you're on mute. To unmute, it's in the lower right corner. How about that? Great. There we go. Hi, uh, hi, Doctor. Pleasure to meet you. Uh, thank, thank you all for having me. This is going to be fun. We're so glad to actually have you here today. Um, have you had a good day so far? Yeah, yeah, it's been good. Um, I have a grant that's undergoing council review right now, or what was earlier today. So I keep checking the website, but nothing. So uh, it's it's a good day, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm waiting. Oh, well, the best oh. of luck with that. Yeah, welcome back. Thanks. Waiting for the grant okay. review committees. Yes, we shall distract you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Serena? Beautiful. Oh, she's just uh, fixing some bugs with her app. She'll be uh, here momentarily. We? Oh, sorry, Jamie. Go ahead. Oh, uh, no, no, please, please. Victoria. I was just going to say, should we um, do a little stage dive and then bring Katarina back up into upper left? Opinion, Katarina? Hi, sorry. Uh, I was lum, now my app works. Um, I had to update it because I couldn't pin the the presentation. It looks How are you? Welcome, <laughs> Nicholas. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks. I'm sorry. I opened the room, but then I had to drop out and come back in. I wasn't able to to post the to put the presentation up. So. I wanted that to work for sure. So thank you for your patience and thanks for being yeah, here. Yeah, no problem. You know, it's funny. I, I've been uh, back in the office for a while now. So when I when I came upstairs to get ready, I had to clear all the little toy trucks and little, uh, little figurines and stuff off of the work from home desk, which now doubles as the Paw Patrol desk uh, before we got started. So I'm glad I gave myself some extra time. Oh yeah, it got some. It clocks up everything fast with kids. They take over yeah. every little corner. <laughs> yeah. Are your kids going to be listening to talk this evening? Um, if we're lucky, they'll stay asleep. Well, one's asleep. He's been asleep since like five. Um, he had a, a busy day at preschool, and I think the other one, she's uh, she had a nap, so she's downstairs with mom. She'll probably stay down there she'll probably go to sleep at some point hopefully uh hopefully i don't disturb them but um okay we'll keep our voices lowered nah, 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 <laughs> that's okay. if they if they if they come in they come in you know <laughs> so i've been hearing about tms for 
for a while. I'm going to be really curious what the latest word is. It's, I think it's really exciting. It's a, it's a really, uh, really exciting, like new emerging field uh, at the same time. Like it's, you know, you know, they've, it's been approved for depression for I've going on like 15 years now or pretty close to that, I think. So um, it's showing like some clinical efficacy, efficacy, but there's still so much to explore. So it's, it's a really cool field. I'm, excited to be a part of it and, you know, um, be able to have the room to play with the parameters a little bit and explore a little bit. I, I think that's a, that's a fun position to be in, um, when you're doing science. Oh yeah. I, I will probably get around to asking you about the interaction with calcium waves and astrocytes at, at some point, but <laughs> we can use that. All right. All right. That's Serena's way to warn you for what's to come so you can be prepared for it because there's going to be a lot of questions. <laughs> well, I, I slipped and fell okay. in the astrocyte rabbit hole, so I'm just really fascinated with the, you know, the, the whole bit. So there's usually an angle like, I'll, I'll, when I find, a, you know, a good setup, I'll ask. Well, I'll, I'll have to, all right. I, don't mind me googling in the background because I, I I don't think I know the answer to that. Um, oh, oh, okay. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but that'll be even more fun. <laughs> the guest, I, Serena. <laughs> Tonight's episode of Stump the Guest. <laughs> well, no, it's astrocyte syncytium, calcium waves. They're connected with gap junctions. Um. Anyway, yeah. Okay. Now this will be. Hi, Kirko. Um, hi, everyone in the audience. Hi, Summer. Hi, um, Jenny, Joanne, Simon. Welcome, everyone. Um, please feel free to um, ask or comment questions in the chat or come up to the stage later if you have questions. And uh, we will start in a minute. And um, so, yeah, thank you, everyone, for coming. And of course, Nicholas has a special thing here. Uh, oh, yeah, it's already not, I just realized. So, um, yeah, I think, can we get started? I think so, right? Cool. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, it's another wonderful evening and we have an amazing guest speaker here today, uh, Dr. Nicholas Balderston. He will talk about his um, uh, novel individualized um, targeting in TMS treatment. But before we, um, we start with um, questions and the presentation, let me um, introduce you uh, to him. He um, did his, um, he's a research assistant professor of psychiatry at UPenn and he did his bachelor at the University of Florida and his master's at the University of Wisconsin and later his PhD in experimental psychiatry and neuroscience 
at the University of Wisconsin. And um, later he did his postgraduate um, training at um, as a Chateaubriand Fellow at the École Normale Supérieure and his postdoctoral fellow um, as a postdoctoral fellow at the NIH, NIMH <clears throat> from 2014 to 2019. And um, yeah, uh, Dr. Baldestam is an experimental psychologist and his work mostly focuses on anxiety and he um, his research um, uses um, different approaches um, for um, analysis like uh, psycho psychology, neuroimaging, neuromodulation uh, to uh, test brain behavior hypothesis to understand the mechanism that um, lead or uh, to clinical anxiety disorders. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for being here and talking about your really um, important work. But before we get started with your presentation, Victoria uh, would like to ask you a few more general questions, if that's okay. That's wonderful. All right, thank you. Thank you, Katarina, for the, the, um, the bio. That was so fascinating. And so, um, yeah, Dr. Balderston, to carry us into your discussion tonight, I just have a few questions for you that are um, to learn a little bit about you and to help us get to know you a bit. And so my first question is, if you can reflect on your life in this any time in your life and out of a moment or an experience that really let you know, that clued you into the idea that you felt connected to Ryan? That is my question. Okay, so uh, I, I think uh, I might cut out a little bit, but if, if I understand you, uh, you're asking to point to a time in my life um, where I felt uh, connected to science. Is that, is that the gist of it? Yes, you out a little bit. I don't know if it's me. Let me go my wife. Yeah, that was my question. Okay, so I think the, you know, I, I, I didn't have a background in science um, and really until I got to grad school. I, I didn't really know that that's something that you could do with your life. And I, I think the, the first time I really, uh, I really felt that was uh, in, in the final semester of my, my undergrad, I was taking a, a class on uh, brain behavior relationships. It was essentially uh, an undergrad uh, intro to neuroscience class, although it was uh, wasn't really labeled as such. And the the author of the textbook wrote it in such a way where where they were talking about different discoveries made by different people in different labs and sort of the conditions of the lab and you know how the research got done. And they they really laid it out as a job that people did in real life and not this sort of you know fantasy thing that happens um in the movies by people in like white white coats you know and uh until then i i'd never really thought that that was something that you could do you know and so uh i, I was just really really fascinated with that book and i, I it made me want to get into neuroscience and it made me want to study neuroscience um and uh, it took me a couple of, <coughs> excuse me, took me a couple of years to get to the point where 
uh, I was able to make it into grad school and able to join a research lab. But when, when I did, it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was so cool. Um, I, uh, showed up, uh, I showed up in Milwaukee, uh, on a Thursday and I called my, uh, soon to be advisor and I was like, Hey, you know, uh, I'm in town. Maybe we could, uh, we, we could have a meeting, um, or something and I could, you know, get, get to know the lab. And, you know, those are the first words that he, he spoke to me. He was like, well, tomorrow's Friday. Uh, we have lab meeting. It's at noon. You're expected to be there. And so I showed up at lab meeting. And from then on out, I, I was like in a lab and I was doing science. So um, I, I don't know. It's kind of a long winded answer, but that's that's um, sort of how I got my start, I guess. That's the best kind of answer. <laughs> Thank you. Well, sure. I appreciate that detail because all the little all the details, you know, they're like the beads in the necklace. Um, you know, yeah. that, that make it add, uh, you know, glimmer, glimmers of, of and sparks of interest. And I, I think I'm, it's interesting to hear how many times we think that something that's really just fun for us isn't something that's accessible. And, and that sounds like what you were saying, you know, that this book showed you that it was science was a real thing that you could really do. And what was the name of the book? Oh, I have no idea. Okay. I think it was, I think the, one of the authors was, uh, I forget his first name, uh, Koob. I think he's, uh, I, I want to say that he's, uh, he's in the intramural program now. I think, I think he's one of the, uh, maybe he's the leader of NIDA or not NIDA, maybe, um, in INDS. I, I, I don't remember. I think we're the, we were the authors of the textbook, but, yeah. and, you know, it's probably, 2004 since uh since i read that well thank goodness you came upon that and then maybe you can bring us along the path from that friday lab meeting <laughs> up to where you are in your current research sure yeah so um yeah i showed up at lab meeting on friday uh he introduced me to uh Doug and Jennifer, and they were the they were the senior grad students that, that were going to teach me, and so they they showed me to my office, and I had an office, and I had a computer, and I had access to fMRI data and neuroimaging data. Uh, the lab I was in was a uh, uh, classical conditioning, uh, like fear conditioning lab, that did sort of both human and non-human animal research, and the 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 human research was all uh fmri uh of uh fear conditioning and so i started out by analyzing some of the data sets that were collected and started programming some of my own psychophysiology experiments so i started out doing you know fear conditioning and measuring skin conductance responses from the uh, fingers um and then uh you know uh did some fmri work uh, through happenstance, I met uh, the uh, the then head of the the MEG, so magneto magnetoencephalography uh, research program at MCW, and realized that that was uh, a cool new technique that I could use to study really rapid responses, and I wanted to study really rapid responses in uh, fear learning without awareness, so. We started doing a collaboration there, and then he introduced me to um, my uh, one of one of my other predoctoral mentors, uh, Dr. Catherine Tallon Bowdry, 
uh, who's at uh, ENS at Echo Normal. Um, and so I, I did uh, a fellowship there um, and I collected all my dissertation data using MEG in Paris. And I was li lived in Paris for like nine months, which was really fantastic. If you, know, if you ever get a chance to <laughs> somehow find a grant that takes you to Paris, like, yeah, I highly recommend it. Um, and then I came back and I defended my dissertation, um, stayed another semester in Milwaukee and just started applying for postdoctoral positions. And one of the places I uh, applied and one of the people I reached out to was Christian Brion, um, who uh, led a section in the uh, NIMH intramural program. And uh, he was looking for a postdoc. He did, he, his work was mostly, uh, using the threat of uh, predictable and unpredictable shock. So it's really similar to fear conditioning, but it's more instructed. And um, it gives you a way to sort of differentiate between really rapid fear responses and more like phasic sustained anxiety responses. Uh, but what was really exciting for me is it, it gave me a chance to combine the psychophysiology type experiments with more cognitive experiments. So one thing you can do with that is you can layer, you know, uh, threat processing on top of other uh, cognitive tasks like working memory tasks or executive processing tasks, that sort of thing, and really study the interaction between um, anxiety and cognitive processes. So I did a bunch of studies in Christian's lab. Uh, I'll also say one of the really nice things about working uh, in the intramural program is the the resources are pre-allocated you know you don't have to apply for grants or anything you're just given time on the scanner and you're given you know a budget and uh, you can really do a lot of really interesting research that you uh, would otherwise have to you know scrounge and figure out a way to pay for so uh, as a postdoc I was a postdoc there for five and a half years and I think I probably collected you know, several hundred subjects worth of fMRI data um, just because we had the time and it was, and that's been so valuable as like an early career researcher now to have that data as, as a windfall to sort of look back at and use as like preliminary data and really design uh, new studies. But while I was there, uh, we did, we did uh, quite a few studies uh, looking at anxiety cognition interactions. And we kept finding this one region of the brain, uh, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that was uh, becoming activated when these two things uh, sort of, let's say, butt heads. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to stimulate that region and see what happened. And so we formed a collaboration with uh, uh, Dr. Holly Lisenby. And uh, I was able to start learning neuromodulation and brain stimulation and TMS and all of these really advanced uh, methods that that I know now, um, I, I just got some really, really excellent training and we were able to find some uh, interesting interactions like, or interesting causal interactions where when you perturb that circuit or when you perturb that region, you can directly impact anxiety expression um, in, in a systematic way, which, which was really interesting. Um, and so, uh, you know, collaborated uh, with her, worked in her lab for a little bit, and then she introduced me to um, uh, the head of the center that I work at now, and I was able to um, find a soft money position in the psychiatry department at UPenn 
you know, through, through those, uh, through that connection. And um, now I'm just working on uh, finishing up a career development grant. And I'm looking to transition out of that career development phase and start applying for uh, research grants from NIH. And um, really the next, you know, five years of my life are just going to be to secure enough, enough of those grants to start building a lab and start building a research program. And we'll see how it goes. That's, that's kind of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, for bringing us along and, and I, I hope and I think every one of us has noted your advice about making sure to find a grant that will send you to Paris. So thank you. Um, that's great advice. Beyond that, um, you're welcome to begin your discussion and we can follow that with Lene, if that's okay with you uh and you can uh, relax, and we have your link pinned at the top, and we will take care of you know modulating questions and that. So thank you so much, and and the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank okay, you. that's great. Yeah, you're free, yeah, so, you're free to begin. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, uh, really jump right in. Then hang, hang on, just a second. I'm gonna shut this door. Um, so, uh, uh, as you might have guessed, today I'm going to talk about uh, neuromodulation, and I'm going to talk about uh, how we can use uh, data that we know about the brain, specifically uh, functional connectivity data, to try to understand the best way to target and deliver neuromodulation therapy to uh, uh, precisely impact symptoms in individuals and groups. And uh, if we jump to the uh, next slide, to slide two, um, you know, my background, uh, as I talked about before, is in, in anxiety, but uh, anxiety and depression are really comorbid. And uh, together, they make up, uh, you know, the, the, the largest category of psychiatric disorders um, in terms of total number of diagnoses. And, you know, depression is also uh, one, of, one of the largest, uh, one, one of the largest uh, uh, disorders that um, lead to significant impairment. So, you know, 5% of the, the population suffers from depression, uh, but it's the leading cause of uh, disability worldwide. Uh, leads to suicide, uh, or can lead to suicide. Over 700,000 people die of suicide each year. And um, anxiety uh, is also uh, uh, really impactful. I think the, the overall impact of uh, uh, anxiety on society is upwards in the like $48 billion per year range. Um, and you know, we have treatments for both depression and anxiety. The primary treatments are medication and uh, talk therapy, so like cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure therapy, but there are also barriers to treatment. So a lot of the drugs that we use now have side effects. Um, you know, you have to try one drug and then the next drug and then the next drug. To, and really, really, it's trial and error to figure out which medications work for folks. Um, and, you know, uh, 
therapy can be expensive. It can be hard to, to um, could be hard to make all the appointments and, you know, um, we can, we can do better. We can, we can try new treatments or we can try, uh, aug augmentation treatments to try to improve, uh, improve these existing therapies. And that's, that's where neuromodulation comes in. And when I talk about neuromodulation, uh, let's jump to slide four now. Um, uh, really what I'm talking about is uh, device-based neuromodulation. And so the idea is that you're going to use some kind of energy, whether it's like electric energy or magnetic energy or uh, pressure energy in the case of, uh, or sound energy in, in the case of uh, uh, focused ultrasound to impact specific circuits in the brain in specific locations while leaving, you know, other locations and circuits unaffected. So unlike pharmacological interventions where, you know, you take a pill and that sort of is processed by the liver, gets into the bloodstream and really affects to some degree the entire brain um, in a similar fashion, these uh, device-based neuromodulation techniques are uh, uh, more focal and um, they, they don't involve, you know, any uh, chemicals being uh, entered into the bloodstream. So um, in terms of side effects, uh, the, the side effects are pretty mild. Um, if you go to slide five now, you can see uh, really, this is sort of the, the, the state of the art in terms of uh, what's being done with neuromodulation. And you can see, uh, if you look on the y-axis, you can see sort of the focality of the uh, particular technique. And then on the x-axis, you can see the invasiveness uh, of the technique. So, you know, you can start out with uh, something like transcranial uh, electric stimulation, so like TDCS or TACS. These are uh, uh, what we call subthreshold, meaning that they can't really trigger any uh, action potentials in the cells. So they're really just modulating the background excitability of the of, of the cells in the brain, but not really triggering brain activity per se. Uh, and with the with these electrical techniques, they're going to be uh, much more non-focal because they're they're they they're filtered through the through the scalp and the skull and there's resistance there. So um, if you if you uh, move to the right a little bit, uh, we have what's called like subconvulsive. So th these are techniques that um, can actually change the activity of the brain so they can induce action potentials. Uh, but they're not really designed to uh, induce a seizure per se. Um, so again, they're they're still uh, very non-invasive. Uh, side effects are are minimal. Um, but in the case of uh, uh, TMS and DTMS, which is deep TMS, they're using uh, magnetic fields uh, which can penetrate through the scalp and the skull much easier than electric stimulation. So you can uh, you you can get more focal activation of specific brain circuits, and then I won't talk too much about these other categories. But you have uh, convulsive therapies like ECT, which has been the gold standard for um, depression treatments, you know, for close to a hundred years. So it in the instance where nothing else works, um, ECT is a really profound and powerful way to make depressed people better. Uh, and we're really 
just starting to use uh, magnetic energy in a similar way to induce a seizure to treat depressions. Uh, this is this is known as a magnetic seizure therapy. Again, the nice thing about magnetic seizure therapy is that you're not dealing with all the resistance of the scalp and the skull, and so you can get really more focal stimulation um, and potentially minimize the cognitive side effects of uh, ECT. And then finally, we have deep brain stimulation and vagal nerve stimulation. These, these are going to be the most invasive because you actually have to do surgery to implant these devices. So this is just sort of a, a, a background of the state of neuro, neuromodulation as it exists today. My talk is going to be focused on um, TMS, uh, and that's, that's the technique that we use in our center um, primarily, and that's the technique that uh, I use in my lab. So... If you skip to slide six, you can see uh, myself and my uh, very enthusiastic, uh, we'll call him an unpaid intern, uh, who is uh, administering the TMS. Uh, uh, so the way that it works, you can see uh, there, there's a coil, a figure eight coil, and you place the coil near the scalp, and you activate the coil, and that activates the brain cells um, directly beneath the coil. Um, and you have different types and patterns of stimulation could lead to uh, different changes in activity. So there are some types of stimulation that can decrease the excitability of a particular uh, region of the brain uh, and other types that can increase the cortical excitability. So I like to think of it as, um, in, in the case of uh, uh, excitatory stimulation, you, it's almost like you are training a particular region of the brain. So you are sort of uh, giving it exercise to build up the connections in, in a similar way uh, as you would do if you were like lifting weights or something like that. Um, the principle of TMS is based on Maxwell's equations. I'm not really going to go into these, but the uh, there are a couple of uh, fundamental principles. One is that um, particles and fields are essentially interchangeable, as are uh, magnetic fields and electric fields. Uh, but importantly, they interact with one another. So if you look down at uh, Faraday's law, the, the, the main takeaway is that when you change a magnetic field, you induce an electric current. Um, and then with Amp's law, uh, changes in currents uh, or electric fields can create uh, corresponding magnetic fields. And that's that's how TMS works in principle. So that's that's slide seven. If you jump to slide eight now, you can see it in practice. Again, this is a standard administration of uh, TMS uh, with the coil near the scalp. If you jump to slide nine now, you can see uh, the, the electric current is um, is being passed through the, the uh, circular coils that make up the figure eight coil configuration. Um, and in slide nine, you can see uh, through AMP's law, this creates a magnetic field that is uh, perpendicular to the coils that penetrates into the brain. Uh, and it penetrates directly through the skull uh, without any resistance, again, because it's uh, a magnetic field and not an electric field. And then if you go to slide, uh, slide 10, uh, if you go to slide 11 now, you can see uh, with Faraday's law, once the, uh, once the magnetic field penetrates into, uh, into the brain, it also creates a corresponding electric field 
that affects the excitability of the uh, neurons directly below where you uh, place the coil. Um, and so knowing, uh, knowing these fundamental physical laws, we can then try to understand where in the brain the electric field is going to be created um, so that we can, uh, we, we can um, best position the TMS coil to target the specific brain regions that we're interested in. And the way that we do that is uh, shown in slide uh, 12. Uh, the way that we do that is we essentially solve these uh, field equations um, for this complex system. And so the, the, the main method that people use for doing this is called finite element modeling. The idea is that you take this complex system, which is the brain, the head, the skull, the scalp, the CSF, the gray matter, the white matter, and you uh, tessellate those by uh, sort of wrapping a, a, a triangular tessellated mesh around them. And then for each of the points, all the triangles on those meshes, you solve Maxwell's field equations. Um, and, and if you do that, you can, see, uh, you can see the distribution of the electric field in the brain. Um, and I'm hoping you can see in slide uh, 13, the uh, animation. Uh, you can see down in the left-hand uh, corner, the position of the, uh, the uh, figure eight coil just represented as a bunch of uh, single point dipoles. And then in the, uh, the, the larger picture, you can see as the, as the coil rotates around and around and around, uh, the, uh, both the direction of the current and also sort of the intensity of the current in the underlying cortex um, changes in, in intensity. And um, what we can do then is we can use the, we can use this electric field distribution to understand how TMS uh, might change the underlying activity of the brain. And then we can um, solve these equations for multiple locations and multiple orientations of the coil, and then evaluate those in some way to figure out the best way to hold the coil to directly impact the part of the brain that we're most interested in. And uh, those, two, those two key points are what I'm gonna focus on for the rest of the talk. The first one is you know, figuring out how the electric field is gonna penetrate into the brain and distribute across the brain, and then figuring out you know, the best part of the brain to try to stimulate. So th those are the two key fundamental problems that uh, I'm trying to solve with my research. Um, but if we uh, jump uh, to slide 14, we're gonna, uh, and then to slide 15, we, we can start to look at applications of uh, TMS. And even, you know, even in the early days uh, before we started doing um, these more fancy uh, uh, electric field modeling type approaches to optimize the TMS coil positioning, um, you can, you can, you can get a pretty good effect just by placing the coil where you think is a good spot. You know, if it, you know if you know that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is important for depression, if you place it over the DLPFC, uh, chances are you're going you're going to impact depression. And so um, th that's that's kind of how the the early studies were uh, conducted using uh, what's known as like the five centimeter approach, where you 
find out where the motor cortex is, and then you just move the coil five centimeters across the scalp uh, in anterior direction, and you know you, you aim for that spot. Again, this isn't the the ideal approach because it's not really optimized across participants, but using this approach. Um, uh, uh, researchers were able to show that it significantly impacts depression symptoms uh, when compared to uh, a sham TMS treatment. And the the study that I'm showing now is the original study that led to the FDA approval for TMS as a treatment for depression. And this has been replicated uh, numerous times and it's been uh, validated using meta-analytic approaches. And so we have a pretty good idea that stimulating the left dorsolateral peripheral cortex can uh, improve depression symptoms in treatment-resistant uh, uh, depressed individuals. However, again, you know, I think we could do better if we if we jump to slide uh, 16 now. Um, again, the the major focus of my work is to try to optimize the targeting of the TMS coil both in terms of the location. So, you know, the physical point in, you know, uh, three-dimensional space, the X, Y, Z coordinates, uh, what, what's, what's the best location to hold the coil, but then also the, the orientation, you know? So if you think about it like a plane, you've got the roll, the pitch and the yaw, and all of these six de degrees of freedom need to be accounted for if you're going to optimize the coil position and, so um, the question then is, what are the data that we use to um, optimize these six degrees of freedom to best, to best position the TMS coil for treating depression, both in individuals uh, and in groups, or, or really any psychiatric disorder for that matter? Um, so uh, let me jump to 17. Um, the the research that I'm going to talk about uses a resting state fMRI. So uh, if you're unfamiliar, uh, slide 18 is sort of a, a just a brief primer in resting state fMRI. So the idea with uh, resting state fMRI, well, well, the idea with fMRI in general is that you're recording changes in in uh, blood flow uh, and blood oxygenation in uh, the entire brain uh, across time. And then you split the brain up into different chunks, like so different cubicle chunks called uh, voxels. And then you can record the, the signal in that voxel over time, which corresponds to the amount of uh, oxygenated hemoglobin in the, in the tissue there, which roughly corresponds to the activity level. Um, but with uh, resting state fMRI, what you, the approach then is to take that signal that's recorded in that specific location in the, in the brain across time and correlate it with the signal recorded from another location in the brain across time. And um, if you do that, say, in left and right motor cortex, what you can see, let's say in panel C with the, the yellow line and the uh, orange line, is that across time, the signal in those two voxels are highly correlated. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a lot of work going into trying to understand what that means. Um, but uh, what we do understand is that this correlated signal across time is to some degree related to um, both structural connections in the brain and also uh, communication in the brain. 
And so, um, you know, it's it serves as an okay stand-in for understanding how different parts of the brain communicate with one another. And it, uh, it, it roughly corresponds to the types of activation you would see if you just had somebody do, do a task that activated those voxels. So tasks that activate, you know, the, the, the left motor cortex are generally going to activate the right motor cortex as well. So the, the resting state data tends to uh, also reflect the, the task-based data. Um, so in this simple case scenario, we're, we're just basically taking one voxel on the left side and one voxel on the right side, and we're correlating with those with one another. Um, but, you know, we really have the, the whole brain and the whole brain is split up into voxels. And we really want to know how all the voxels or all the locations are communicating with, uh, all the other voxels and all the other locations to see if we can pull out the maximum amount of information from uh, this, these signals that are measured across time. And again, a lot of work has gone into, if we, if we jump to slide 19, 19 now, a lot of work has gone into understanding the best way to divide up the brain based on you know, co-activation studies, based on resting state functional connectivity studies, based on you know, data reduction techniques. And, you know, broadly speaking, you can divide the brain and you can divide the cortex up into parcels. And um, using some of these advanced analytic approaches, you can group these parcels into networks. So um, really, uh, you're, I'm just showing in slide 19, one example of a brain parcelation and a brain network uh, approach that divides the brain up into uh, parcels that are grouped into networks that tend to correlate with one another across, uh, across time in uh, resting state fMRI studies. Now, um, the cool thing is if you, let's say that you wanted to understand how all of these regions are talking to one another and you wanted to see if there's any sort of underlying information or structure uh, what you can do is you can correlate e the time series in each parcel with the time series in every other parcel and then group those parcels into networks and just display them as a cross-correlation matrix. And so if you jump to slide 20, this is what I'm representing here. So this is just a standard functional connectivity matrix. Uh, and again, the value in this matrix represents the correlation co coefficient between each parcel and every other parcel in the brain. And you can see I've just arbitrarily grouped these into the different networks uh, corresponding to the uh, labeling in the atlas that I chose to use for this. But when, when you do this uh, uh, cross-correlation and grouping into different networks, you can see a very orderly structure. So you can see you know, across the diagonal, you know, there are squares that are really bright, some that are dark blue. You know, um, there's a lot of structural information um, buried in these functional connectivity matrices. And it's really, the, the challenge then is how do you best represent that information and how do you best use that information to understand, you know, the best spot in the brain to try to hold the coil and to try to try to deliver the TMS. Um, so this, this is uh, the start of answering that first part of the question. 
How do we use the information about the brain that we know to target the particular networks that are involved in the expression of, say, depression or anxiety symptoms? If we uh, jump to slide 21 now, um, you can see that this uh, functional connectivity approach has been applied to uh, TMS targeting uh, by other groups. Uh, and in the case of depression, um, what has been found is that if you target regions of the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that show a strong negative correlation with the region known as the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex represented as this yellow dot in panel A, what you see is that people who have the stronger anti-correlation um, tend to have the best clinical improvement in terms of uh, their depression symptoms. So if you, if you place the coil in such a way where you're maximally targeting the negative correlation between these regions, the DLPFC and the subgenual anterior cingular cortex, say represented by the green circle in panel B and the green dot in panel, or the green circle in panel B and the green dot in, the green circle in panel B and the green dot in panel, panel C, D, you can see um, that, you know, strong negative subgenual DLPFC connectivity is associated with good clinical improvement. Whereas if you target, um, you know, a different region that's, that's positively correlated with the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex, you see much less clinical improvement noted by the red circle and the red dot in panels B and D. Um, and this is uh, shown in uh, um, E just as a, uh, a group level correlation. And again, what, what this suggests is that the underlying connectivity of the brain can tell us something about how depression is mediated and how to best target those networks in such a way to um, treat those symptoms. So if we go to, uh, if we go to panel 22, uh, we're gonna jump into my work now. And, and really the, the rest of this talk is, uh, I'm gonna show you my approach to try to optimize those six you know, locational degrees of freedom um, to target uh, psych psychiatric symptoms. And, you know, I really like the work that was done in panel 21. It's really, uh, really groundbreaking work. Um, and it's it's been replicated a number of times, um, but it's specific to depression. So, you know, if you have some other psychiatric disorder, say like addiction or PTSD or anxiety, they may not share the same underlying mechanistic uh, network dysfunctions. And so what we learn about depression may or may not be useful for understanding how to target for uh, these other psychiatric disorders. So what I wanted to do is develop a method that you could generalize across disorders. So something that wasn't really, really dependent upon the type of symptoms or the type of um, network dysfunction. And so now I'm gonna talk about this generalized approach. Uh, and really, it begins uh, in uh, slide 23. So at its core, this, this is basically my approach. So if you look in the, the uh, green panel here, the idea is that 
specific connections uh, between between regions of the brain are going to be important for understanding psychiatric symptoms. Um, and you can represent how important a specific connection is for a given psychiatric symptoms by basically across subjects trying to predict the psychiatric symptoms based on <coughs> based on the uh, connectivity values for that uh, connection. So in this case, the connectivity values for a given subject would be the, the X in this equation and um, the, the slope of the line or the strength of the connection between symptoms and connectivity would be represented as the M. And then the, the uh, intercept, uh, you know, is B. So the idea is, you know, you can just use a simple regression equation to try to predict mood from individual functional connections. But then if you jump over to the blue panel, uh, what, you can, what you can then do is try to figure out how TMS is going to change those connections um, and then modify the equation such that you introduce a, a new term into the equation, let's call it E for simplicity for uh, the E field, um, um, to then try to predict the change in mood and the change in symptoms um, based on how you think the TMS is going to affect that specific connection. And um, I just I just want to I just want to check in. Is everybody on uh, Is everybody on board with this? This uh, um, does this make sense? Is this uh, confusing to people right now? Um, I'm I'm okay, but um, is, does anyone have questions? Oh, yeah. So, so this. Oh, Serena, oh, you go ahead. Did you oh no, I just wanted to confirm it's making sense to me as well. Hey, cool, cool. So if if everybody uh, is really on board with this basic approach. Um, now I'm going to jump in and <laughs> go down the rabbit hole a little bit more. So again, the idea is you want to predict mood from uh, connectivity values, and then you want to predict the change in mood based on how you think the TMS is going to affect those connectivity values. And then you want to scale it up to the whole brain. Um, so, you know, in, in just a basic theoretical approach, it should be as simple as, um, you know, solving a big multiple regression now, uh, where you include all of the connections in the brain. Um, so you sum across, uh, um, so you sum across all the, all the connections in the brain, and then you uh, put that into a big multiple regression model, and you predict mood from from that. Um, and then you know you downsample the uh so then if you go over to the blue panel now you downsample the the electric field model to uh the different parcels that you used to do the functional connectivity and then you um, introduce an e-term for each of the connections in the brain and then again you sum across all of that to get the change in the move ideally it should, ideally it should be as simple as that um the downside to this approach is that you would need uh, you need at least as many participants as you have uh, connections, and um, in the parcellation that I'm using, that's about five and a half thousand. So that's that's not really feasible. So so we need to figure out a way to reduce this connectivity data in a way that's manageable. Um, 
And I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, but first, if you jump to, sorry, that was slide 24. If, uh, uh, I didn't mention that. So um, if you jump to slide 25 now, this is really, uh, this is really just how I'm coming up with the E for the equation. So you compute the electric field, you, then have so if you if you look at that the the blue brain to start out with you essentially have a value for each voxel in the brain for how much field is going to uh be introduced into that that voxel given your uh, site of stimulation you then downsample that to that same atlas that you use to do the functional connectivity that you use to parcelate the brain um and then um essentially for each of those parcels you have a uh, a value and you can then convert that to a vector, uh, which is the black and white line that you're seeing um, third panel over. And then you can essentially, let's say, average that vector with itself. So if you shift that vector 90 degrees and average it with itself, you can come up with a matrix that's sort of the same shape as that connectivity matrix that I showed you before, where each value in that matrix matrix represents the average electric field um, in, in each of the two pairs of those connections. So the, the average across the pairwise comparisons. And, and really, if you boil it down to like the simplistic, uh, as simple as it gets, the, the assumption that I'm making here is that the change in connectivity in these uh, connections is going to be directly proportional to the average of the electric field uh, in these two regions. This may or may not be true, um, but this is this is an assumption that I'm making with this model. So you can sort of see that represented in this uh, this uh, graph here, where all the lines are just connecting each region to every other region. Um, so that's this is how we get the e and e in the model. Um, now to get the uh, M and the X, uh, we need to reduce the data. And so now we're gonna jump to slide 26 and this is gonna be an eyeful. So uh, just uh, strap in. Um, so what I wanted to do is reduce the data in such a way that I capitalized on all that structural information that we know is in this large uh, panel in panel A, but gets rid of a lot of the noise in the data. And so essentially what I did is a uh, principal components analysis. And I'm, I'm not really a mathematician and I'm not really a statistician, but you know, at a, at a basic understanding, a PCA um, separates the signal in this uh, square matrix into um, different orthogonal components. And you can uh, you can then look at the amount of variability that each of those uh, orthogonal components accounts for in your overall signal, and then you can separate the signal from the noise. So if you um, look at panel B, that's essentially what I what I did is I plotted the uh, uh, I, I plotted the uh, amount of variability accounted for by the component um, by the component number, and it generates this nice sort of like elbow graph that looks a little bit like a scree function. And then you just got to find the elbow in that. So anything um, above the elbow you keep, anything below the elbow you toss out. 
So now then what you can do is um, for each of the participants in the experiment, there were uh, 90 total, you have, uh, you have a weighting for each of the components. So you could figure out how much each participant in the experiment, how much their signal contributed to a given component in your PCA. And that, 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 gives you, uh, that gives you the matrix that you see in panel C. So this is like uh, an 11 by 90 matrix because there are 11 components and 90 subjects. Then you could do that same basic multiple regression that I was describing in slide 23, but instead of using you know, 5,000 or, or 55,000, excuse me, 55,000 connections, I'm just using these 11 components. And so then I can use these 11 components uh, in panel C to predict the symptom, let's just call it depression in panel D. And then what I get from that is a coefficient vector in F. Now, now the vector in uh, F, what that represents is how strongly each component predicts symptoms across subjects. All right, so almost there. Then what we can do is we, you know, we can also use the PCA loadings, which basically tell us how much each uh, individual connection contributes to each of these 11 components. And we can multiply that by this uh, coefficient vector uh, using matrix multiplication. And that gives us an output vector. And this output vector is one by 55,000. So um, essentially what this output vector now represents is the degree to which that specific connection contributes to the expression of depression across the 11 components. So we're, we're sort of capitalizing on the signal and tossing out the noise. Um, does this make sense? Yep, uh, it makes sense to me, but um, please let me know everyone if you have questions and uh, we'll address them or if Nicholas will address them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I promise. This is this is the most complicated uh, slide of the slide of the the presentation. So if if you're all on board with this, the rest of this talk is going to be smooth sailing. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much time I'm taking, but I'll try to go a little bit faster as well. Um, so if we jump now to uh, slide 27, so all of this uh, all of this approach that I was describing uh, is the approach that you would take for a, uh, a single site and a single location. And um, essentially you're solving that MX plus, MEX plus B equation uh, for a single site and a single location uh, or a single site and a single orientation. And you get a single value for that. And that single value is the predicted change in symptoms based on how you think that stimulation at that site and that orientation is going to impact symptoms. Now, the really cool thing is that you can do this a bunch of times, especially if you have access to like a cluster computing environment. So you can iterate this approach across some sort of a predetermined uh, parameter space. So in, in, in this model, essentially what I did is I, 
I computed this uh, several times for various locations across an axis uh, along the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex going from posterior to anterior. That's plotted in the x-axis of the uh, colorful panel in slide 27. Um, and then for each of those locations, I also uh, varied the orientation of the coil and iterated that across 24 equally spaced uh, yaw orientations. So it's kind of like if you place the coil flat on somebody's scalp and then just sort of like twisted it along that angle, that, that's essentially what I'm doing. And so what that gives me is for each point in this, uh, this uh, I think it's a, like a, an 11 by 24 matrix, you get, uh, you get a value that represents the predicted change in symptoms uh, given that site and orientation of stimulation. And so this is where it gets fun. You can um, solve this equation. So once you have the, the loadings across subjects, you can solve this equation for individual subjects. So this is what I did in slide 28. So what you can see again is that same site by orientation, uh, um, site by orientation uh, matrix, uh, where the cool colors represent a decrease in depression symptoms. So we're using the Madras and the HMD, which are both standard uh, depression instruments. Um, and, and the uh, the whitish or the light colored circle is essentially the uh, the center of that is the optimal site of stimulation, and sort of the diameter of the circle just represents the variability in that estimate uh, that we obtained using bootstrapping. Um, and so, you know, for individual subjects, you can see the optimal site and orientation of stimulation. And what's really cool is that it's very close to the uh, the, the site that's associated with um, the strongest subgenual anterior cingular cortex um, uh, anti-correlation, uh, which I found, you know, uh, using an independent analysis. So the idea then is that we're replicating this uh, previous work showing that this subgenual ACC anti-correlation is important for reducing depression symptoms, but we're doing it using this like completely novel modeling approach. Um, if we jump to uh, graph or slide uh, 29, you can see this uh, is significant at the group level. Um, so we, we used uh, permutation tests. Uh, so these, these are the, the T values anywhere where you see red dots, which is sort of only in the bottom right corner of uh, the second panel um, is where the permutation tests uh, did not surpass statistical significance. So you, you can see again that um, given left DLPFC stimulation in our model, we would predict significant decrease in depression symptoms. And um, the, the, the text on these figures now is representing different targeting approaches using either the five centimeter approach or uh, different Broadman areas or uh, like, like the BA9, BA46, or the F3, which is sort of a EEG 1020 based targeting approach. Um, so you can see it largely replicates the previous work suggesting that um, the optimal site of stimulation is gonna be pretty close to BA9 um, and between BA9 and uh, this, this uh, five centimeter approach. Um, so what's really cool 
is that this model predicts what we have observed in the literature, or I guess it, it postdicts. So it's consistent with what we've observed in the literature. Um, but you know, it's it's based on assumptions. So it's based on the assumption that uh, well, the primary assumption that it's based on is that the change in connectivity scales with the uh, scales with the electric field model. Um, uh, we're, we're getting close to uh, one hour. Um, do you want me to go through these last few slides or should I, uh, should I skip to the last side and slide and show the summary? I mean, I'm fine. Uh, it's more how much time you have. Um, we, we, we have time, but um, if you right. kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's like four, four more slides. I think we can handle it. Um, Sorry, sorry. Uh, I'll I'll stick around for questioning uh, questions. So if anybody has questions at the end, I'm happy to answer them. Uh, but if we jump to slide 30 now, uh, this is a, this is another data set uh, that uh, one of my colleagues uh, provided and allowed me to use. And so in slide 30, this is the data that you really need to test this model. And the idea is that you want to collect uh, resting state data before and after some sort of TMS intervention, <coughs> excuse me, to plot the changes in connectivity um, and to see whether or not the model can predict those changes. Um, and really to see whether or not the changes in connectivity scale with the electric field that uh, is induced in the brain. So again, uh, what we're trying to do then is uh, we're trying to predict or so we're measuring uh, resting state data before and uh, after uh, theta burst stimulation, which is a type of TMS that is known to induce uh, plasticity in the cortex. So we get measures for uh, resting state connectivity pre-theta burst stimulation. Uh, we get measures for post-theta burst stimulation, and then we uh, can calculate the difference between the two. Um, and then to validate the model, what I did was, again, I processed the, the E-field uh, the same way I did in the previous study where you know, I calculate the E-field. Uh, so this is slide 31 now. Uh, Downsample it to the, uh, the cortical atlas. And then I create this uh, E-field matrix, uh, which you can see in the top right panel. Um, and then for uh, the uh, figuring out like what's the parameter space uh, for the previous study, these were those were unstimulated subjects. These were just subjects that I had uh, or participants or patients that I had uh, resting state data for. These these patients and these participants, not only did I have the resting state data, but I actually had the physical location that was stimulated. So what I could do is for each individual subject, I could define the parameter space centered on their site of stimulation. So that's what you're seeing in the blue set of panels below, where this uh, big lightning bolt to the left is their actual site of stimulation. And then I just uh, calculate uh, for a few sites uh, posterior and a few sites anterior. And then I calculate uh, uh, for the different orientations at the stimulation site. And then I can plot that in uh, the same style of uh, matrix uh, that I had before. Now, critically, the values in this matrix no longer are the predicted change in symptoms, but the, the percent of variability explained 
in the pre-post changes in resting state connectivity by the uh, the E-field uh, model uh, represented in the top right panel. So how well does the model um, predict the changes in connectivity? And if the model's doing a good job, it should predict changes in connectivity best at the actual site of stimulation versus um, a site that is not stimulated, stimulated. So you should see the percent uh, variability explained drop off as you get further and further away from the stimulation site. Uh, so you jump to slide 32, indeed that's what we see. So if you if you just look at the uh, x-axis, um, you can see uh, at the stimulation site, we get the uh, strongest uh, uh, percent variability explained uh, right in the center of the graph, and it drops off as you go to the left or to the right, or if you go more posterior or you go more anterior. And um, you get stronger values, you know, at the center orientation and the orientation that is uh, 180 degrees from that, uh, which is expected based on the physical models uh, as well. So you get a systematic variability in the amount of uh, variance explained in pre-post changes in connectivity as a function of both the site and the orientation of the stimulation. If you jump to uh, slide 33, this just shows the group results. Again, if you average across the, the subjects and um, do the permutation tests, um, you can see that on average we're predicting, um, uh, or, or we, or on average we, uh, we're really predicting about one percent of the variability, um, but we're doing it fairly reliably. So we get a um, a, a medium effect size. So we get like a Cohen's D of like 0.6-ish. Um, and, and, and you can see that the only place where it's significantly, where the model is significantly predicting the uh, changes in connectivity is right at the site of stimulation shown in the, uh, the center point of uh, the graph on the left. And so, um, you know, this is preliminary data. This is only 14 subjects. Um, the grant that uh, is getting reviewed literally today by the advisory council um, would be to uh, expand on this model, uh, try two different types of theta burst stimulation and test it in uh, 100 subjects per group uh, with four uh, different doses. So that would be a really, really good test of the model. Here we've got a pretty okay test of the model and there's good preliminary data suggesting that the changes in connectivity scale with the uh, electric field induced in the cortex. But um, give me a few more years and I should have uh, a much stronger data set to either confirm or uh, reject that assumption. Um, so that's that's really where I'm at. So uh, we jump to the last side slide this just shows uh, all the folks that helped out with this this research um and so i want to say thanks to all them and thank you all for uh listening um sorry i went a little bit over on time uh, i tend to talk a lot but i'm happy to stick around and answer some questions if uh if you have them thank you so much um for guiding us through this um you know this approach and um explaining to us really well um how you uh, manage to 
to improve this, um, you know, for the future, this type of treatment for individuals. I think that's, that's, that's quite amazing because uh, I have a friend of mine, he, um, he's now actually a, a director of a clinic in Portugal and they've been using TMS um, quite a lot and um, they show already um, that a lot of patients are treated quite successfully, but with this um, approach to um, individualize uh, the treatment, I think that will be even even better. And um, yeah, so I think this is such an important work and um, congratulations and <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah, well, what I think is really exciting too, sorry uh, <clears throat> to jump in is, you know, everything I showed today was about depression, um, but, you know, my research is focused on anxiety and we don't really have the precise targeting approach for anxiety, but we what we do have is a lot of resting state data and a lot of, you know, sim symptom data. And what I'm, what I hope is that with this model, we can r relate the symptom data to the, uh, the connectivity data in such a way that we generate novel targets. And so we find new places in the brain to stimulate that might be uh, in, important for anxiety. And I just started a collaboration uh, with, with a group from uh, the VA department where they have, you know, 500 uh, participants with PTSD that have uh, resting state connectivity and, you know, PTSD symptom measures. And I, I, I just can't wait to dig into that data set and really see if there's any novel places that we can stimulate for PTSD. I think that that might be really cool. But I, I agree. Like, I, I think like figuring out how to make TMS better and more applicable to different disorders is a really exciting field. And I'm just so lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, I agree. Oh, that's that's really exciting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to learn more about your future work. Um, do you think that um, addiction maybe one day would also be uh, somewhat ameliorated with with TMS? I'm not sure, but... Um... Absolutely. And there's actually a work ongoing. There's actually a substantial amount of work ongoing right now. I would say the expert in this area is uh, uh, Dr. Colleen Hanlon. She's done a lot of work with... Uh, with you know, studying uh, addiction and studying uh, how to use TMS to treat addiction. I, I think a lot of her work was instrumental in getting TMS approved for smoking cessation. Um, and and really what her, her work suggests is that the optimal site to stimulate for addiction is not necessarily lateral prefrontal cortex, sort of over the temple of your head, but really like the frontal pole. So if you were to place the TMS coiled directly over the person's forehead, um, that's the optimal site of stimulation uh, for a lot of the uh, uh, addiction disorders. And she's, she's got an active program of research ongoing, and um, a lot of her trainees are pursuing this research. I, I actually think there's some folks at uh, NPU that, or, or uh, NYU that came from her lab that are doing, you know, these addiction-based uh, TMS studies. So, Yes, I, I think not only is the answer to your question, you know, uh, an enthusiastic yes, but I, I think that 
we're really on the cusp of having that as, you know, uh, a treatment that's going to become more widely available for uh, folks with addiction. So. Yeah, that's amazing. What do you think about, um, you know, this is still somebody has to come to a clinic that has these, um, I don't know how expensive these devices are. What do you think about these ones that are on the market for home use? Um, you know, the, all this electric stimulation headbands type of things. Do you think they, they, do they do anything? Um, because I think a lot of people are starting to use them. Yeah, so if you jump back to slide five, um, uh, you those uh, sort of like wearable at home headband, like transcranial direct current stimulation type uh, um, applications, those really fall in this um, sub threshold category of um, neuromodulation. So they're not really strong enough to induce action potentials. Um, I think that, and you know, I, I don't know, um, I don't know the, the clinical evidence uh, well enough. Um, so my understanding of the literature is that if you do a carefully designed study with a specific behavior and Uh, really precise localization of the uh, TDCS uh, electrodes, you can show behavioral changes with uh, uh, like TDCS or TACS. However, um, I don't know that there have been a lot of studies showing any clinical usefulness uh, of this. So I think that it's probably still too early to tell But I think that the effects, um, such as they are, are going to be, um, the effect sizes are going to be fairly small with uh, TDCS and TACS. So, um, yeah, you know, I think your mileage may vary, vary um, with that. I will, I, will say, I will say, though, that um, they're fairly safe, you know. Um, so they're you're not inducing enough current to uh trigger a seizure um typically i i, I to my knowledge i don't know if there have been any seizures induced with tds tdcs but I, i don't think there have been um and i think as long as you uh, you know properly ground the equipment or run it off a battery and you know as long as you properly place the electrodes the risk of unintentional electric shock is pretty low as well. So, I mean, I, th I think they're safe, but the effect size is probably fairly small. Well, thank you for those answers. Um, yeah, if anyone has questions, please flash your microphone. Serena, uh, Katie, Dr. Shah, go ahead. Uh, so I, I'm really fascinated in this work. A um, couple questions. Uh, one thing that really seems important about your model is that it uh, it sets up a more um, perhaps more optimal coil design or multiple coils or you know in taking different regions 
and tuning the magnetic field to to hit more selectively have you have you looked at that and um, is there anything you can say so i have not uh looked at different coil designs um or um different uh um you know, using using multiple coils. I I haven't done any of that work myself. Um, I do have uh, I I do have some um, I, I do have some coil files that represent different coils that I can run um, through to see how say like something like deep TMS might affect uh, brain con excuse me uh, brain connectivity. I haven't done that yet. Um, that is something I do want to check out and see um see exactly how that works um uh, i and again this isn't my work but i know that there are people working to design uh multi-channel coils in such a way that you can trigger you know different uh channels in the coil um uh, sequentially to actually guide the electric field um uh, either in you know xy space or sort of like in like uh orientation space um i don't know I, I think those are really experimental and i don't know that there's any of those commercially available uh yet at this point but i think probably in the next five years we'll start to see some sort of multi-channel coils that you can use to really optimize and direct current in a very uh controlled uh controlled way and Oh, man, if I could get my hands on one of those, that uh, I, I think it'd be fun to do some studies with those. So, um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you've got the, uh, you mean, you've, you're solving Maxwell's over the grid. And, you know, um, you've got your regression to suggest, you know, where those, you know, with the shape of an optimal effect or an encouraging effect would go in. Uh, it's It would seem that numerically you could sort of design the desired field, and then that would become, you know, an out, an outsourced engineering issue to have coils to give that field, you know. So it's kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think uh, uh, I'm sure there are people working on that. I'm sure there are people more qualified than me working on that. I will say, uh, if you jump to slide 13, all the work that I showed today. Um, I was solving the equations for a specific uh, coil type, uh, um, and the, it's the same, you know, uh, figure eight coil that I use. So, if figure or slide thirteen in the the figure in the bottom uh, left in that animation, those mm -hmm. uh, those uh, coil di those uh, dipoles represent the the windings in the coil that I used. So. The E field created um, and sol the solving of the equations is definitely going to be dependent upon the uh, the actual uh, coil that you use. Um, so I'd have to resolve the equations for each new coil that I wanted to test it on. And there's a really good paper um, uh, by a ZD Dang uh, colleague of mine who uh, essentially solved. Uh, um, Maxwell's equations for like 50 different coil types in just a, uh, not like a full head model, but like a circular head model, just to show like the 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 mm -hmm. current distribution. And 
Uh, one of the cool things is that uh, as you design coils for different purposes, you start to you start to realize that there is a depth focality trade-off. So you can create these like really complex coils that can penetrate deeply into the brain. But as you do that, they'll start to um, they'll start to uh, create like more electric field across a larger swath of the cortex. So there's this depth focality trade-off that, that is sort of like a fundamental limit of uh, coil design. Um, but um, um, yeah, so I, I don't know where it's going with that, but it's really interesting. Well, well, yeah, no, because one area like in antenna design and beam steering, there's an awful lot of work in getting yeah, yeah getting that that shape just right but but then so um in terms of the connectivity though what's really fascinating and i i promised i'd get around to astrocytes um the uh you know one function they serve is to you know in a very non-local and spatial way connect different regions of neurons and get them to fire in synchronicity and I'm wondering if um, insights there could possibly improve the model, um, not just in terms of um, the connectivity or the correlation, but perhaps also the phase uh, and uh, the timing, because the support of the synchronicity uh, comes from these waves at certain frequencies that resonate. And so I'm wondering if there's um, if that's a rich ground to improve the, the model. I think that that's uh, really interesting. I think sort of to, to broaden the question a little bit, like understanding the cellular mechanisms of TMS stimulation is really critical for understanding how they're going to affect the cortex and connectivity and excitability. And um, one of the really exciting developments in the field is the uh, development of data burst stimulation which uh, uses uh, really rapid bursts. So 50 hertz bursts of uh, uh, single pulses that are then nested inside of a uh, uh, theta wave. So a five hertz frequency. Um, and this is all based on electrophysiology work done either in hippocampal slices or in you know cells in the hippocampus um, showing that, you know, these, uh, these uh, theta waves are really important for synaptic plasticity. So, um, you know, uh, uh, they developed uh, theta burst stimulation um, as a way of inducing plastic changes in synaptic connections. Again, it's not about astrocytes, but, you know, inducing plastic changes in synaptic connections uh, with, uh, uh, many fewer pulses. And now, you know, a typical TMS treatment using 10 hertz stimulation is going to last about 40 minutes, but you can get the same effect using um, intermittent theta burst stimulation, uh, you doing a session that lasts only three minutes. And now uh, there are groups that are starting to do what's called intensive theta burst stimulation or um, I think the 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 main model now is the Stanford, uh, Saint Stanford, uh, something applied intelligent neuromodulation treatment, something like that. But basically, they're doing connectivity targeted uh, 
intermittent theta burst stimulation, but instead of doing one session a day, they're doing like 10 sessions a day and they're cramming um, a whole, uh, a whole uh, course of treatment that would usually last four weeks into a single week and showing just some really profound uh, decreases in depression symptoms. And, you know, it's all based on, you know, this fundamental cellular neuroscience work showing that, you know, this particular wave of stimulation has these, uh, these uh, um, plasticity inducing effects. So to get back to your question, I don't know the state of the, uh, uh, the state of the research looking at how TMS affects astrocytes and whether or not uh, we can capitalize on specific frequencies to target, you know, astrocyte function. Um, I think that there is some work looking at how to uh, control the shape of the TMS pulse that might affect different cell types as well. But I think that those, those studies are probably ongoing. Um, I, just, I just don't know them at this point. Uh, but I, I, I think that it's really exciting. Well, yeah. Um, so what, what's, um, at least from some recent nature reviews, what's um, part of the astrocyte calcium waves, it's in the theta region to low gamma. And mm. um, they, uh, they support the plasticity. I wouldn't be surprised if, if the astrocyte function is behind the, uh, what you just described. Um, so it's really, there's a lot of just new stuff coming out on astrocytes and it's really, yeah. it's showing profound effects in, in anxiety and depression and uh, dementia and, and other higher cognition. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's, you know, if, if they're finding benefits with theta waves that there's some implication for astrocyte being a part of that cellular mechanism. But anyway, fascinating talk. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Does um, anyone else have questions? Dr. Shah, go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you so much, Nicholas. That was a wonderful I mean, research that you just shared with us. My question is about, I mean, uh, coronotype uh, type. I mean, we know that we have a different population and they have a different circad circadian preference. Also, we know when we are talking about the coronotype, uh, I mean, people can choose to be in what I mean, level also, there is a relationship between coronotype and the genetic performances. Uh, somehow, I just uh, look at the slide that you just provided, and some of the areas that you reported in your study was pretty much matched with the sleep deprivation and problem that we have with some of the patients that we can use the TMS. I was just wondering, uh, can we have more information around that? If you have more information, that would be nice. Thank you. Yeah, um, I will say uh, I'm not an expert in uh, chronotypes or uh, insomnia or sleep deprivation. Um, I do know that uh, uh, sleep disturbances play uh, have a profound impact on both depression and anxiety. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm part of a project that's uh, starting to look at some of the uh, relationships between uh, insomnia and uh, in, in the development of anxiety and depression. Um, and I, I have no doubt that, you know, there are 
mutual relationships between anxiety, depression, insomnia, sort of uh, influencing one another back and forth. And so the treatments for depression, whether they are directly targeting depression and minimizing, you know, uh, sleep disturbance, disturbance systems just by uh, symptoms, just by sort of reducing the uh, overall burden of psychopathology on the subject, or whether or not um, um, they're targeting specific insomnia uh, uh, locations that share overlap with depression. I'm not, I'm not sure the answer to that. Um, I do know that there are a few active studies going on looking at uh, using TMS to uh, treat insomnia um, or to study and understand insomnia. I I think that um, there are studies outside of the prefrontal cortex. I think there are some studies looking at parietal stimulation. Again, I'm, I'm not an expert in that field, but um, I have no doubt that the circuits would be overlapping, overlapping just because, you know, the symptoms are overlapping as well. So um, ideally, you know, if you could, uh, you know, maybe treat the insomnia, maybe, maybe you could reduce a lot of the depression and anxiety symptoms as well. But uh, I, I don't know. It's not my, I, I'm not an expert there. So uh, take my answer with a grain of salt. Sure. Thank you. And just out of curiosity, I mean, because you have nine I mean, uh, uh, participants, right? So what's their average age they were? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I could look it up in the paper. Uh, I haven't looked at those data in a while. I wanna say they're slightly older than the average college age population for like healthy volunteer studies. I wanna say uh, average age is probably in the 30s somewhere. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, those those are definitely some of the details that I haven't committed to memory yet. Um, so uh, the first time, uh, how, you do you remember how many they were, and then you ended up to ninety. For example, your main sample was hundred people, and then you reduced to ninety or ninety from the beginning to the end. Um, so I know that we had uh, we had more than ninety. Um, uh, we, we had to remove several people. A lot of it was just due to um, either movement during the MRI scans or artifacts in the MRI scans or just sort of incomplete data. Um, uh, I'm just looking at, yeah, I think the average age was somewhere around like 28-ish, uh, uh, plus or minus eight. Um, and then I think we had around 108, oh yeah, we had 118 participants. We had a cohort of like 25 or so uh, healthy participants. Um, I, I actually, I'm looking at the paper now. Um, uh, yeah, I, I know we, we did have to throw some people out. I'm not, I can't remember exactly how many we threw out but, and for what reasons, but it's definitely reported in the paper somewhere. So thank you, Nicola. Sure. I saw Deep, you had a question. Go yeah, ahead. thank you, Katrina. Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Nicholas. I have a simple layman question. Um, what is the 
sort of neuroplasticity and and you know um and the treatment like how how much they endure what what kind of studies what's the longest studies that have been done i imagine what you're doing is fairly recent so you probably need more time but generally in the area uh what is uh, uh, going on with you know in terms of the treatment enduring and 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 the actually the plastic uh, the neuroplasticity yeah so uh a typical course of treatment for um depression like the fda approved treatment um you would come to the clinic for like five days a week uh for about four weeks and on each of those days um they would deliver uh 40 minutes of um 10 hertz stimulation um that's like a typical uh that's like the typical treatment for depression um the uh the theta burst treatment for depression which was more recently approved it, it mirrors that very similarly um where you would have you you know like the person would come in five days a week um they would uh come in for about four weeks uh, but instead of having a 40 minute session, they would re receive only about uh, three and a half minutes of stimulation. Um, the more the more recent uh, um, the the more recent studies um, uh, are using uh, accelerated uh, or intensive uh, TMS, where they they group more sessions in a, in a day and they have uh, longer days but like shorter courses so i mentioned the the stanford group are um delivering um 10 doses per day of theta burst uh for for a full week uh we have some trials ongoing uh in our center that are using that approach um i have a similar approach that i'm starting with um anxiety where we're doing uh eight sessions of one hertz stimulation uh a a day for uh for a week as for like the the neuroplasticity uh and the neural changes you know i i think that that's really hard to uh really hard to quantify so a lot of these uh studies are a lot of these studies are done retrospectively where they'll um collect resting state data um before the before the TMS, um, but not necessarily after. Um, a lot of the studies that look look at before and after changes will often look at um, within session changes. So you know you record resting state, stimulate, and in the same day, you know you uh, record resting state again. Um, and and there are much, much fewer studies that say give a course of stimulation and then measure the resting state before and after. And I think primarily because it's uh, a fairly expensive study to do. Um, the studies that have found it uh, or have done that um, have really focused on specific uh, uh, specific seed-based connectivity where you just take one region of the brain and correlate it with a few other regions of the brain, mostly to uh, mostly to avoid issues with like multiple comparisons. Uh, a lot of what's been found, um, 
with pre-post changes in connectivity have shown really fairly modest changes in uh, downstream connections from the site of stimulation. But I think a lot of those uh, a lot of those studies um, really suffer from the fact that they're you know using a seed-based approach as opposed to sort of an e-field weighted approach, which which I'm using in my current work. Um, and they're not really looking at whole brain changes; they're just looking at single seed-based changes. So I, I think that we have a lot of room to grow and a lot more to learn about the plastic changes that occur following uh, neuromodulation. And I should also say, you know, different durations and different patterns and different uh, types of stimulation are all gonna have di differing effects. And really the parameter space to explore is fairly large. So I, I, I think there's, a, there's just a lot of work to be done, um, I guess is the bottom line. I bet, I bet. But, but what is the, I mean, what have been the longest sort of studies in terms of that somebody got treatment and then they came back maybe two years later or something like that, okay. and then they were looked at again? And uh, just another small question, any side effects? Those, those are my questions. So the, the first question, um... I think the longest pre to post um, measures of connectivity that I know of are on the order of like uh, a week to a couple of weeks. I, I think it's definitely more common to measure symptoms um, for several months to years um, after uh, TMS as opposed to connectivity. And I, I will say um, while, the, while the changes in symptoms do last, Oftentimes, uh, in a therapeutic setting, um, individual patients will need sort of like top-up sessions, or um, um, they'll need to come back to get receive sort of uh, maintenance sessions following a course of TMS um, in order to uh, uh, for the effects to last a little bit longer. Now, side effects. Um, there are really two categories of side effects. The first one is uh, really a risk factor, and that's uh, the risk of inducing a seizure. So while um, TMS is generally thought to be uh, uh, below the threshold for inducing seizures, there have been seizures induced uh, using TMS. So um, in, uh, in a typical uh, TMS laboratory, they'll, uh, we, we do a lot of things to try to mitigate that risk. Um, you know, we uh, um, we don't have any risk factors for epilepsy. Uh, we screen them to make sure they don't they're not taking any uh, seizure uh, any medicines that lower the seizure threshold. Um, and then and then we do another technique known as a motor threshold testing, um, where we calibrate the intensity of the stimulation to the individual's brain. So. What we do is we basically find their motor cortex, the spot that makes their thumb twitch, and we uh, we, we dial the intensity of the stimulation down so that their thumb twitches about half the time, and that's uh, that's the threshold between being able to activate the brain cells and not being able to activate the brain cells. And then we use that a basis as a basis for how to define the stimulation um, and during their course of treatment. And then the, the other sort of category of like side effects are more commonly experienced. Um, and and the, the main one is like headache or discomfort. 
So, you know, the, the TMS coil induces a magnetic field and that penetrates through the skull and that activates the brain cells. But, you know, it's sort of going through everything in between there. And, you know, the stuff in your periphery uh, runs on the same electrochemical processes. So your nerves and your muscles and uh, everything. So depending on where you hold the TMS coil, you'll have different peripheral effects. So let's say I place the TMS coil over your, uh, over the back of your brain, say on your parietal cortex or your motor cortex. You don't really have a lot going on there in your periphery. It's just like your skin and your skull. So uh, what you'll experience in that case is sort of like a, a tap or a mild shock or a pinprick or a buzz. Um, and it's really just the uh, magnetic field activating the skin cells in that particular location. But as you move the, the TMS coil towards the front of the brain, um, you uh, you start to activate the the nerves that control the face and the the, the muscles that control the face. So the primary the primary thing that you feel is like the like your forehead starts to clench or your jaw might clench or you might feel like a weird sensation in your jaw or a weird sensation in your teeth or you know you might blink or your eyes might water. Those are all just sort of natural reactions to the the TMS pulse activating your peripheral innervation of the face. Um, and depending on the intensity of the stimulation, some people can find that unpleasant and it can induce a headache. But um, generally, headaches have been fairly mild and they tend to go away with like over-the-counter medication. Um, yeah. And so I would say probably depending on the study, maybe like one in five people uh, end up having a mild headache uh, from, from the treatment. I'll ask a question if we're done with that line. I was curious um, if there is any applicability to this in a chronic SARS-2 case, if you're aware of anything like that, or if you see any sort of applicability for that condition. Uh, can you repeat the condition? SARS-2, COVID. Oh, COVID. Um, yeah, uh, I don't I don't know if there's any work being done um, on that. If, if there is, um, I'm definitely not aware of it. I don't, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not too sure even what the what the target would be for that. Uh, maybe maybe there are some symptoms of long COVID, like uh, I'm not I'm not an expert in COVID, like lethargy or sort of lack of energy or something like that that maybe could be treated with central stimulation. Um, but um, I don't I don't know that it's really the right technology for um for treating covid in any sort of way um, the reason i asked was some patients are being diagnosed with uh anxiety depression and things of that nature but obviously it could be due to different mechanisms yeah and i, I think whatever the whatever the mechanisms i think that um if somebody has uh you know, if somebody has failed other medication treatments uh, um, for their depression or anxiety symptoms, then I think they might be a good candidate for TMS 
um, regardless of sort of what the uh, um, um, what the instigating factor for their depression and anxiety symptoms. Um, but uh, I don't know that I've seen any applications of it specifically for depression and anxiety symptoms in um, COVID patients. Thank you so much for your answers. Sure. Um, hello, Dr. Nicholas. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sorry if I, I took someone's turn, but I just had a question, um, especially while working with the depression, patient uh, with depression. Uh, as you know, like there is a very famous side effect of depression, like uh, withdrawal, or maybe uh, the, the, the patient with depression will have like high expectations uh, about the, the, the this treatment. And as I know, uh, I hope I'm right, like this usually it will be a prolonged procedure uh, requiring more sessions. So have you maybe uh, experienced like uh, some of the cases they will uh, have uh, more maybe uh, let's say disappointment while they don't have patience to examine the the the, the I mean the results from this treatment while uh, and also about that the commit their commitment to treatment they 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 are coming every session or do like have you faced uh, situations where the patients just might maybe stop coming or maybe they expecting everything all their problems to be you know solved uh, giving their mental health is uh, fragile at this uh, moment and uh, at, at this time I mean and another question what about patient with the uh, migraine uh, if patients are uh, known to have migraine for uh, a long time or uh, are they recommended for this uh, type of treatment and my last question I know so much I'm sorry my last question is it like to does it uh, like uh, stimulate the transmitter to produce more uh, dopamine like if the patient was for example misdiagnosed for depression and he received this type of treatment would that make anything worse or Nothing will happen. Thank you. I'm sorry for so much questions. No, that, that's okay. Uh, th thank you for the questions. Um, I, I will say it's getting a little bit out, out of my expertise. Um, I don't, um, in terms of uh, um, the uh, outcomes for depressed patients, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that there are a lot of, um, depressed patients that are uh, withdrawing the study uh, from the studies just because because they don't um, um, have the anticipated effects. Um, I, I will also say um, a lot of my I, a lot of my work is in healthy volunteers, or a lot of my sort of like hands-on participant contact has been in healthy volunteer studies. So I don't know that I necessarily have the clinical background to really give you a good satisfactory uh, answer to that question. I will say um, across the center, dropout for our studies has been fairly low. Um, but, you know, um, we, also, we also provide compensation for our participants, so that may be a, a mitigating factor. Um, the uh, second question, I, I forget. The third question was, um, whether or not the TMS induces changes in dopamine receptors. And I think that there is maybe some preliminary evidence that there might be some changes in dopamine receptors um, at the site of stimulation. 
I think that that's um, I, I think there needs to be more work in that field. And so studies um, looking at uh, um, uh, uh, dopamine receptors using PET, I'm, I'm not really a PET expert, but positron emission tomography before and after um, TMS, I think um, would be a really good avenue to sort of test that hypothesis. Um, I have a, a, a friend who does uh, uh, alcohol use disorder work, um, and she she does some PET imaging in, in that population. And we, we've talked about trying to do some, some kind of a project in alcohol use disorder patients looking at uh, dopamine receptor expression following um, TMS, but we haven't really gotten anything off the ground at this point. Um, and the second question, uh, I do not remember. It was about the patient with chronic migraine. Are they? Oh, yeah. So there are there are TMS treatments for migraines. Actually, um, I think one of the hypotheses about migraines is that they're they may be related to hyperexcitability um, in the cortex. So I think that there are some treatments, uh, TMS treatments, aimed at reducing cortical excitability that have been shown to reduce the frequency of migraines. Um, I don't know that it's uh, FDA approved at this point, but um, I, I know that there's uh, research going on in that direction. So I mean, doctor, this, uh, the, the migraine is related to hyper, being you know, hyperactive or did I get this wrong? So I think that that's the hypothesis that um, that is driving the TMS research into migraine treatments, is that one particular mechanism behind migraines may be hyper excitability in the cortex. So if you can design a TMS treatment that reduces cortic cortical excitability, you may be able to reduce uh, migraine frequency. Um, but again, that's definitely not my field, but I think that there are studies ongoing with uh, promising preliminary data in that direction. That's very exciting. Actually, I have, I'm diagnosed with ADHD and I have a chronic migraine. I never linked both of them together. <laughs> I'm going to look into that. Thank you very much, doctor. That's interesting. I, I've never made that connection uh, either. So um, there might be something there. Thank you very much, dear. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for um, answering all um, these questions. I know we went way over the time you <laughs> we planned for it, <laughs> but um, we really that's okay. I, I haven't finished my beer yet, and there are no screaming kids, so I have time. Okay. Oh, you still <laughs> have time. Okay, perfect. Um, I wanted to make sure to check in, and um, yeah, if anyone has more questions Jamie Kiko um, Victoria you didn't have a chance to ask or anyone in the audience um, Eric is here Dr. Olo is here and um, many other of our friends so ask questions we still have a little bit of time I was just trying to reconcile I thought you you said that you mostly had healthy volunteers and then uh, but you did study on depression. I was just wondering, but maybe I didn't get that. Yeah, so uh, the, the data that I presented today uh, are from two studies that were collected in our center. 
um, but I wasn't necessarily a part of data collection. So the first study was an ongoing um, study where they just measured resting state connectivity and symptoms in a large cohort of individuals with depression and anxiety. So that was collected mostly before I got to the center and I was able to just take the data and analyze it. The, the second study was an ongoing um, depression treatment trial uh, led by Dr. Desmond Othis, uh, who's uh, co-director of the, the center. So I was able to, again, uh, analyze uh, his data. Um, but again, I wasn't really involved in the collection of those data. I've done some uh, neuroimaging studies in individuals with anxiety disorders uh, when I was at the uh, NIMH. And I have a grant that I submitted, oh, actually a grant that I will submit um, in about two weeks or so that uh, where I'm proposing to do a uh, TMS trial in GAD patients. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, my background is in experimental psychology and, um, you know, I really came to a psychiatry department so that I could partner with these clinicians and bring a lot of like technical skills and um, rely on their clinical expertise and access to patients to um, um, do some of these more clinical trial oriented studies. Um, so it's definitely a team science effort. Um, yeah, does anyone else have um, have a question? No, not. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask if um, I saw uh, some years ago, there was an MIT study that um, that changed uh, with TMS kind of um, a little bit um, the ethical evaluation of some um, like ethical questions like scenarios. Um, do you see any changes in like character traits uh, with TMS? I know it's a more general and probably, you know, it, it gets a little bit away, but it's something that um, made me curious, but then I didn't I didn't see too much of a follow-up question in that way. Yeah, um, I will say in my studies, um, I do not. And I think in, you know, um, in, in, in a lot of the clinical studies, I don't know that they see a lot of those character traits, uh, changes in character traits. And I think that it's, I think there are a couple of reasons behind that. And th this is, this is me speculating at this point. Um, I think, you know, um, I, I, I think for a treatment to be effective, you kind of have to be open to it being effective and open to like the, the changes that the treatment is going to have. And I, I think that, um, it, it works for a lot of these clinical disorders, you know, specifically be, for that reason. You have people that are are, are motivated to um, motivated to get better in the in these treatment trials. Uh, for the for these more um, experimental, like you know, cognitive and behavioral and social neuroscience studies, I think that the effects that you get 
uh, are going to be much more subtle and they're probably not going to be very long lasting. And I, I think as with any sort of like uh, personality trait, um, I, I, I guess uh, what I want to say is like any sort of personality trait is going to be also much more difficult to to move as opposed to um, s sort of like mood and anxiety symptoms, just because I think they're uh, fairly ingrained in, into our sense of self. But again, I, though that's a purely speculative answer. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for that. And uh, Dr. Olu, you joined the stage. Did you have a question? Yeah, and I apologize for, for coming late. Um, I just had a couple questions. Nicholas, uh, the paper um, cited in, in your slides from 2021, I was wondering what journal that was published in? Um, I, I think you're referring to this uh, proof of concept study. Uh, that was uh, neuro neuropsychopharmacology. Okay. I think the link, the link to it should be in the uh, slide notes. Um, okay. Okay. Great, because um, I definitely wanted to check that out in more detail since I came late. I was also wondering, it looks like um, your networks were based on resting state fMRI, and I was wondering if you've also looked at um, looking at structural connectivity from diffusion-weighted imaging to um, look at the influence of that or include that in, in um, your method. I haven't personally uh, uh, looked at that. Um, I am part of a study that, again, is led by uh, one of my colleagues, Desmond Othis, that should come out soon, I think in like science communication, where they, they looked at structural connectivity between the DLPFC and the amygdala and uh, how much that played a role in symptom change. I, I forget exactly what the findings were of that, um, but it, it, was, it was a pretty interesting study, um, pretty interesting analysis of the data. The, the other thing that I've done uh, in some of my anxiety-focused work is to use um, uh, functional activation like, um, like brain activation during uh, a working memory task to guide targeting. So um, let's say I, you know, I have a hypothesis about how working memory and anxiety interact. So I have the person do like a working memory task identify the uh, DLPFC cluster most activated for the working memory task, and then stimulate that and measure the effect of that on anxiety. I've done that across a couple of studies and found you know, direct links between stimulating um, DLPFC regions associated with working memory and uh, changes in anxiety after that. Um, the story is a little bit unclear, but the, there's definitely some sort of a connection there. Um, I can, uh, if, if you email me, I can send you the links to those as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely follow up. It's really interesting. I've seen an um, increasing um, number of studies where they're using that similar type of paradigm, but instead of a working memory task, it might be some kind of uh, task actually involved in the therapy, like a... Um, uh, like a, you know, cognitive restructuring type of task. Yep. And then looking at the areas that are activated for targeting for TMS to enhance that ability to do that yep. skill that they're trying to learn as part of their therapy to kind of accelerate the, the therapeutic response to the, to the therapy. Absolutely. And then I think to push it one step further, um, the, you know, you, you may be able to further, um, 
further increase the effects of the TMS if you control the temporal context during which the stimulation occurs. So let's say if you're stimulating a working memory region, maybe stimulate that region while they're doing the task so you can sort of take advantage of the, the co-occurrence of the DLPFC activation and the DLPFC stimulation to um, to facilitate, you know, some sort of synaptic plasticity effect. Um, I, I think that's definitely an ongoing field of research uh, and one that I know NIH is really interested in, like pursuing. Yeah, absolutely, and it makes a lot of sense as the um, the time that it takes for for stimulation gets shorter and shorter, like for intermittent theta burst stimulation where you can get it down to three minutes for every treatment session, you have to think about bringing a patient in, what are they going to be doing with the rest of that time? And so having them yeah. engaged in, a, in, in actual therapy as part yeah. of receiving the TMS makes so much sense from a pragmatic standpoint, as well as a clinical one. Absolutely. Thank you. And yeah, I'll definitely email you and, and follow up on getting those references. Uh, I had another question that popped up in, and, you know, you considering you're a psychologist and kind of related to what Katarina was talking about, because I'm interested in the behavioral aspect of this. And so you had remarked that, you know, that some of the traits that are, I guess, deeper parts of our personality would not be affected. But but are there, I mean, psychological disturbances which could be more innate to us or maybe genetic in that way that that would be tied in? I mean, that would be also kind of innate that, that are not maybe just uh, products of of later childhood development or something like that. Like, I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at. That... You see, what, is my question clear? I I think so. Um, the the um, the only thing that I have that I could think of to say in response to that is um, a lot of my work on anxiety is focused on trying to um, stimulate and potentially inhibit the regions of the brain that are important for fear and anxiety expression. And we know that those regions, um, you know, developed uh, very early in our, I guess, like phylogeny. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're very preserved across species and they're very, um, you know, they're very difficult to, to, to change and to target. Um, and so, um, you know, a lot, a lot of my, a lot of my work is to try to figure out how to either, uh, directly inhibit those regions through sort of inhibitory stimulation or, um, um, uh, inhibit them by boosting the top-down inhibition circuits that we think are important for regulating those behaviors. Um, I, I would say that, um, um, I've been met with mixed success. Um, I, th I think that I've found some really interesting findings, um, but um, I, there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, but I, I think the 
the closer a trait is to your fundamental, you know, feeling of self, self, like the, the harder it is going to be to augment. But again, that last sentence is pure speculation. Um, so are those uh, the areas that you, you're inhibiting? Would you consider that they also have some useful functions that could be inhibited? Um, yeah, in, in, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what yeah. could some of those functions maybe you want to give it? You know, I, I, I think so. So one of the one of the studies that I'm doing, or uh, one of the series of studies that I'm doing, is looking at parietal cortex inhibition for the reduction of anxiety. Um, and we know that the parietal cortex is a region that's really important for attentional orienting and recognizing stimuli for the, the environment. Um, but, you know, overactivation of this region um, could contribute to the hypervigilance that you see in something like PTSD. So I think that there, while there is a danger of pushing the circuit too far in the direction of sort of... Um, maladaptive adaptations um i think that the that risk maybe is outweighed by the potential benefit of reducing somebody's say like hypervigilance symptoms uh and somebody who's experiencing severe ptsd i don't know i I, th I think it's a balance and um um like i said i'm not a clinician but i think um those types of decisions should be made um, on a one-on-one -on -one basis um, in a in a sort of clinician-patient relationship, um, and those sort of risks and benefits need to be weighed in in that sort of a context. Yeah, thank you. I get that. Yes, thanks. Um, I have maybe a last question. I don't know how much time we have. So, um. How do the, because you, you can apply also different frequencies, right, um, to either have a more excitatory effect or a more inhibitory effect. So um, how, how does the frequency and um, uh, the timing of the stimulation go into this personalized, basically, TMS approach? Um, is there like a general, you know, for this disorder, we just use this type of stimulation or would you, um, would you go by, um, I don't know, brain imaging or, or, or the symptoms? Like, does every symptom have basically a set of frequency that you would apply or would that also needs a more personalized approach, basically. Yeah, wow, this that that is such a, a minefield of a question. It's really like that is like the core of uh, the whole TMS field, um, and I think that it's really the most interesting and difficult question that that we're sort of faced with right now, um, and it's also the question that it's like almost like the hardest to get data on. So I'll tell you like um, how, how it works now. Um, so much of the data that we've collected to understand how frequency or pattern affects uh, excitability has been collected 
um, primarily in studies uh, looking at motor cortex excitability. Um, and so the way that they do that is they'll um, stimulate, you know, say for 600 pulses with uh, uh, continuous theta burst or intermittent theta burst, and then they'll measure people's thumb twitches before and after that. So if you send a single TMS pulse, you can make the thumb twitch and then you can measure how hard it twitches with uh, with like EMG electrodes, electromyography electrodes. Um, and so you can say like, oh, okay, so I give 600 pulses of continuous data burst stimulation uh, and then I measure the EMG response before and after and I see that their EMG response went down. So continuous data burst um, decreases excitability. Um, but then, you know, you got to factor in um, the time between sort of the uh, intervention and the measure, whether or not like the TMS effects are acutely on board. So whether it's like within session versus say something like 24 hours uh, between session. Um, and then, you know, you have to make the assumption that the effects that you observe in motor cortex are going to uh, generalize to uh, completely different areas of the brain, like, uh, say, like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, but it, it's harder to collect the data to directly um, confirm or refute that hypothesis just because we don't have any really good behaviors um, that you can measure immediately after stimulating the DLPFC um, to track that change in cortical, cortical excitability. So it's a really, really difficult question. Um, the uh, project that I'm proposing um, that got reviewed today, uh, I will basically measure changes in functional connectivity before and after, or change in connectivity, connectivity after several doses of either continuous or intermittent theta burst stimulation. Um, so I won't really get any data on excitability, but I will get data on changes in functional connectivity. And I could use that to scale the E-field the, the e model effects in uh, the model that I'm working on. Um, but uh, I, I think it's just, it'll be just one piece of the puzzle. Um, in terms of like what's being done now, typically for a given disorder, um, um, there'll be a site and a pattern of stimulation that seems to show an effect. Um, but to get to that point, a, a lot of times it's a, a little bit of a trial and error. So uh, yeah, I think we're still really working on figuring out the best ways to understand how TMS changes excitability and synaptic plasticity outside of the motor cortex. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't think we're there yet, but, um, you know, um, that's a good place to be in science because, you know, you, uh, at least you got a job for a few years, so. Exactly. <laughs> Is there a way to have people talk uh, do something like would that give more insight you know like when you do brain surgery and people have to answer questions to know that you're not hitting something wrong yeah would, like a way to ask them questions related let's say depression and we know that I don't know they would answer something in a kind of 
expectate to have like expectation that everything will, will go wrong anyways or something like that but would there be some immediate effect that you would be able to to see a change right away and how they would answer the same question again during the stimulation and that's when you hit the right frequency or is that complete nonsense what I'm asking? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that that is the holy grail of clinical TMS neuroscience. Um, we don't, I don't know that we have anything like that at this point. Um, I think some good candidates for that um, might be something like uh, I'm working on using um, potentiated startle as a, an index of anxiety, although that kind of has its problems with TMS that maybe I'll save for another talk, um, or perhaps something in the way of like eye tracking or uh, pupil dilation or um, something like that, or maybe, maybe some sort of a reward task might be sensitive enough to do that. Um, at this point, we don't really have anything that's really acutely sensitive to um, DLPFC uh, stimulation that we could use as a biomarker. But um, if we got that, that'd be really great. What about minor pain? Isn't there a difference? I don't know. That's the problem, right? Probably it's not the same thing for everyone, but isn't there a difference in pain perception too? And the um, yeah, maybe. Um, I um, I guess you could maybe deliver a painful shock sort of before and after the stimulation, um, something like that. Yeah, like um, a finger, you know, like a tiny, like this prick test that, you know, you could you'd sometimes do with mice too. Yeah. Tiny ones, not something that really hurts, but maybe it would be different, uh, perceived like more severe. I don't know. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I, 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 it's possible. I, I don't know. Or it tastes <laughs> good or not. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, interesting. Well, it would be interesting. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a interesting problem. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Um, the, the other thing that compl complicates that is one, one last thing um, is a lot of the off target effects of the TMS um, can have impacts on your acute mood and your sort of acute feelings. Like, so, you know, if you're getting, you know, theta burst stimulation to the prefrontal cortex, it's, you know, you're having your forehead constantly jerking and it's sort of like an intense, you know, sometimes painful feeling. That, that may also, um, you know, change these same variables that we want to use as indices, you know, complicating the, complicating that. And we, we have sham stimulation, but it's not, it's not quite good enough to, um, to use in, 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 uh, for, the, for that situation. But yeah, uh, that was, getting a little bit rambly, but yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's getting kind of late. Uh, does um, anyone have maybe a last question or we all? 
good yeah okay thank you so much for taking the time again it's fascinating work now i'm all sure no this is great this is good fun <laughs> i'm even more curious now <laughs> and uh i wish you all the best and a lot of luck and uh grant and grants and and patience that go along and <laughs> Yeah. All right. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, I'll be sure to tune into some of these other talks. Uh, I like I said, I think this is a really cool group. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be amazing. Come back anytime and give us um, updates anytime you would like. And um, yeah, please come back. That would be wonderful and participate in our discussions. Um, that sounds good. Uh, yeah. Everybody take care. <laughs> take care. Thank you for taking the time. It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, You're welcome. Uh, and uh, for everyone in the audience, thank you so much for asking amazing questions and being here, um, participate or just uh, you know listening. Um, follow the club if you like rooms like this, and we'll have our next room. On Thursday, 1 p.m. EST, uh, Dr. Kachia Paglia uh, will talk about massive gravitons and if they are good uh, dark matter candidates. And then in the evening on Thursday at 9 p.m. EST, we will have Dr. Moses talking about uh, the BC, uh, BCI for decoding speech in paralyzed pe uh, person. And he has actually unpublished updates that he will share the first time with us. And then on Friday, we'll have at 2 p.m. EST, Dr. Lepora talking about artificial 3D printed robot skin that has um, that feels like a human, which is also really interesting. And um, so, yeah. Uh, come back and thank you so much everyone again enjoy the rest of your evening or morning on middle of the night like Jamie <laughs> go to sleep and thank you so much everyone okay I'll close the room and three two one bye everyone <laughs>